Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this episode of the podcast, Jesus is going to teach us about what it means to be light in the midst of darkness and just how important the law still is. And on The Wire, I'm going to explain to you how our response to the bombings in Sri Lanka should be handled very delicately. Otherwise, we risk damaging how others see the Christian faith. All that coming your way as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold Speak podcast. So glad you're here to join me as we continue through our Condition of the Heart study and and take a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, today on the podcast, we're going to finish up Lesson 3 and and have a little conversation about the careful balance that Jesus is attempting to strike between the calling we have to be the gospel to the world and the way that we approach that calling when it comes to accountability— Specifically, how do we express God's unending forgiveness without sacrificing the truth of God's word and the way that he's called us to live? Honestly, it's quite complicated and something we need to spend some time discussing. Now, if you have your study guide with you, go ahead and open that up. We're going to be in lesson three, finishing up lesson three. So we're going to be on page 13, starting with question five. If you haven't had a chance to get the study guide and would like to get that study guide, you can go ahead and grab it on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. If you go to our store, you'll see the condition of the heart study, and you can purchase that for a small fee, and that'll give you the chance to take some notes and jot down maybe some questions of your own and some other things that'll help you to track along easily and, and record your answers so you can reference back to them later if you need to. Now, as we get into this, you're going to notice we're going to be backtracking a little bit for those of you that follow the podcast regularly, uh, because we're going to be reading verse 13 again, which is the verse that we addressed last week um, in the questions leading up to question five. So um, so we're going to go back and and review that and read that again uh, and then move on from there and and show how the, the statements that Jesus makes about being salt connect with the statements he makes about being light. All right, so we're going to jump back and do that. As always, I'm going to be reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait, I don't have an English Standard Version of the Bible. That's perfectly fine. Uh, Just pick out the the translation that works best for you, that you love and use often. And I'll give you all the verse references so you can follow along easily. And if you don't have access to a Bible right now, don't worry. As always, I'll be reading to you uh, these portions of Scripture so you can follow along as you drive or do other things. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13 and reading through verse 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, by a quick way of review here, let's jump back and remember what we talked about uh, as Jesus references salt. When he tells us to be the salt of the earth, you notice that he specifically says that, that salt is being discussed here in regard to its taste. That is to remember that salt makes things taste better. 
right? It makes food appetizing and desirable and makes people want it. And so what we are called to do is to give the gospel, to live out the gospel in the lives of other people, that by experiencing that and seeing that, they want to be a part of what we're doing, right? Because the gospel gives religion, gives life, gives everything purpose and meaning, right? And, and we talked about how that's specifically referencing what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes by starting by saying all of these people that they discount, that, that the world seems to think uh, something's wrong with them, these people are blessed, right? And they have the kingdom of God and, and they're the people that God desires to bring into the fold and to love, all right? And so it's this message of hope that we bring to the hopeless uh, that is the salt of the earth. Now, as we get to question five, it asks, how does Jesus' use of light connect to his salt analogy? Now, Jesus's point here is just like with salt, right? Light is meant to be used in accordance with its purpose, right? That is to say, light is meant to overcome darkness. It reveals things and shows them as they truly are, but not if you cover up the light. Right, in the analogy, Jesus is pointing out that people don't typically light something and then cover it up so that the light can no longer be effective. Right, just like salt, if you light a lamp and then cover the lamp so the light can't right, give light any longer, what's the point? Right, why even light the lamp? Well, in the same way, Jesus is calling us to take what we learn from what Jesus has said and what he's going to say and spread it around to others so that they can see too. Now, notice at the end here, Jesus points out that the purpose of all of this is to reflect well upon the Father who is in heaven. In other words, speaking the truth of God is never about your your own like self-glorification, right? It's always intended to point directly to God. And why is Jesus making such a big point of this? Oh, you'll you'll definitely find out, right? But the, the use of God uh, to glorify the self is a major theme in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and something that we're going to spend quite a considerable amount of time uh, taking a look at, right? The the, the ways that people uh, in this time have used God for self glorification. Right? And we're actually going to begin to address this in the very next question. That's question six. How did Jesus' words about salt and light stand in contrast to the ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Now, what we're going to see here as we go along is the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, kind of carry themselves is very much in contradiction to the way that Jesus began with the Beatitudes. All right? Specifically, we're going to see, see three things. First, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have suppressed the truth of God and, and kind of replaced it with their own rules and laws and ideas. And this has been incredibly destructive to the church at this point. All right. Very specifically, to use Jesus' words, they've taken the light that God has given them and they've covered it up. And really maybe in an effort to use their own light to bring glory to themselves and to people uh, so that people sort of honor and, and, and venerate them uh, as the, 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 the men of this religion. All right. So it's been used largely to build themselves up. Now, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, as a result of this, the religion of God that they present to people isn't very appealing. And in fact, is has really stirred the people up to a position of resentment toward the church and, and a real big misunderstanding of God and how he works. All right, and this is incredibly problematic and a, a major thing that Jesus is going to address. 
All right, so that's the, the first two things there. The Pharisees have uh, kind of suppressed the truth, and they've replaced it kind of with their own religion that, that isn't very appealing to people. The third thing is that, as Jesus points out in verse 16, this misrepresentation of God reflects poorly on the Father. And now God is more associated with the selfish works of the religious elite rather than the loving and merciful works of those who are called to follow him. Okay, and, and so these are some of the real big issues that are going on here in regard to what the Pharisees and the Sadducees have done to the church. And in fact, let's we're going to take a look at this and see this in action. I'm going to read to you uh, from two parts of Scripture, both in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, and then chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. And you're going to get a little bit of a picture as to how the people, the Pharisees, uh, look at the people, right? How they uh, kind of... Uh, view them as as people they should distance themselves from, get separation from. Right? And these are just two examples. There's several examples throughout Scripture, but I'm going to give you these two by way of example. We start with Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And from Luke 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice the position of the religious elite in regards to those that they perceive as sinners. From their perspective, the wrong thing to do is to in any way associate with them. Their view of how the church should handle those who they perceive to be sinful or who those who are even legitimately caught in sin is to just separate yourself from them until they get their stuff together and then they can come back and join the fold. And it's because of this that they have positioned themselves to be above or beyond and higher than everyone else. And Jesus is going to explain that is nothing like what God desires of his church. All right, and so this is what the Pharisees and Sadducees have turned the church into, uh, a place for elitism, a place for division and separatism, uh, a place where God is represented purely by the law. All right, and Jesus wants to communicate the significance and the importance of the gospel. Now, that's not to say that the law has nothing to do with it, because Jesus is going to balance all of this out with this next section in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 to 20, where he's going to talk about himself as the fulfillment of the law, right? And specifically, where is the place of the law when it comes to sinners and how we uh, carry ourselves as the church? All right, so that's our next section. We're going to read again from the English Standard Version. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 to 20. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Question 7 asks, what important point does Jesus make about the law in Matthew 5, 17-18? Now, you may notice that I had you back up a little bit and reread verse 16. The reason for that is because verse 16 leads right into the conversation Jesus has beginning in verse 17. Notice in 16, he says that they will see your good works and give glory to the Father. That is to say, the way that you live out the law and carry the law reflects back on the Father. Now. When it comes to the law, how should we treat it? And that's what he's saying in verses 17 to 18. This is to balance out the message of Jesus and, and the message he's been giving so far about loving the loveless and being merciful to the sinner and, and giving grace to the poor. He needs to make sure that that's clearly balanced with a boundary. All right, That is to say that the mercy that God has and the law that he created are symbiotic. All right, They depend on each other. Right, completely dependent upon each other. Right? Hear me when I say this, and this is sometimes a little bit confusing for people to understand, but it's critical understanding what Jesus is, is saying here. We must make sure to understand that mercy needs the law, and the law needs mercy. All right? Consider what happens if they get out of balance. Right? If we're all mercy, that can lead to a, a confusion of the purpose for something like mercy. Right? If, if we're always sort of forgiving and there's no big deal and don't worry about it and we don't really emphasize any part of the law, mercy isn't even possible. Right? If mercy is what we believe it to be according to scripture, which is not getting what you do deserve, the law is what sets up what we deserve. Right? The law establishes for us that when we violate the will of God, there are consequences. And so because there are consequences, mercy is possible because mercy is God relenting of those consequences. All right, so we, we need to make sure that we have the law in order to properly communicate and understand mercy. However, on the other side of that coin, right, if we're all law and that's all we ever are, we have to realize that that leads to an impossible uh, right, position of perfection. Right? That is to say, if there's no mercy and forgiveness, then the law acts like a prison and we lose all hope, all right? Mercy needs the law to set up the reality that, that mercy is a gift and it's the release from that punishment. And that's what communicates the essential component of God's love, all right? And so mercy needs the law and the law needs mercy. So if Jesus focuses so heavy on mercy at the beginning and talks about how all of these people who have been uh, cast away are loved and were to reach out and be salt and light to them, he needs to balance that with saying, but, but make sure you understand me. I'm not saying the law isn't important. It's extremely important, right? And this is confirmed. And, and we're going to take a look at James chapter two, verses eight to 11, where you're going to see just how important the law is. All right. So this is James two, verses eight to 11. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law 
but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The point that James is making here is we don't get a chance to kind of pick and choose what parts of the law that we obey, nor do we get an opportunity to go, well, I mean, I've done a couple of bad things, but I'm certainly not as bad as that guy, as if it's any justification. The reality is, is that if you violate or break any point of the law, even the smallest point, right? The iota, the dot that Jesus mentions, even if it's the smallest thing, you are guilty of breaking the law. Right? The law can't be dissected into parts and, and where God goes, well, these aren't as important, but these ones are important. It doesn't work that way. The law is the law. If you break any part of the law, you break the whole law. And so what Jesus wants to make sure that he communicates to sort of balance this message is, I'm not saying the law isn't important. The law is extremely important. We just have to recognize where its place is and how best to use it. All right? And that gets us to question eight. What is Jesus calling us to be in Matthew 5, verse 20? This verse is a little difficult to understand depending on your translation. All right, now, now bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a pretty stereotypical kind of pastor thing, but it's, it's not to sound smart, all right, just to help you better understand what's being said here. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to briefly, right, briefly talk about the Greek because it really helps you better understand. Okay, so the, the Greek word here that is translated uh, in, in some translations to surpass, and in this translation, the English Standard Version, to exceed, is a Greek word, paris you say. All right, paris you say. It's derived from the word parisuo, which means to surpass or abound. All right, but this particular form of the word is subjunctive, and without getting too technical, it just means that we need to add a should be to it. All right, so we say should be somewhere. All right, so so let's try this with a little bit of a different translation that I, I think will help to clear things up a little bit in terms of what Jesus is expecting of us. He says, so, right, a better translation, right, unless your righteousness is, as it should be, better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so, so what does that change? Well, it changes a little and changes a lot. Okay, the, the wording is just a little, but essentially what he's saying here and how you could read this, and, and I think appropriately so, is that the kind of righteousness that you promote has to be better than the righteousness that the Pharisees are promoting, right? Their righteousness is all wrapped up in them. It's completely legalistic in every aspect, but the righteousness that Jesus will teach them, that righteousness comes from Jesus, right? And it's it's better that it comes from Jesus and in his righteousness is better because it comes only from Jesus himself, right? What Jesus is going to accomplish. It isn't based on how many laws you fulfill or how good you are, right? It isn't based on appearance. It's based solely on the interplay between the law, which is good and perfect and amazing, and God's mercy through Jesus Christ, which is complete and overwhelmingly full of love, right? That's the righteousness that God promotes, not this crap the Pharisees and scribes seem to be selling to the people, and which isn't going over very well, all right? So, so what does all this mean when you put it all together for how we live? 
Well, that's a great question and actually the topic of next week's focus of the the podcast, right? We're going to kind of get our first insight into the idea of the condition of the heart and why the condition of the heart is so important as Jesus is going to make a strong contrast between the righteousness that the Pharisees promote and what is true righteousness, right? And what is it supposed to look like? All right, so uh, Jesus has kind of set the stage here, and then next week we're going to start with getting really into the condition of the heart stuff and what all of that means. All right, now uh, to completely switch gears uh, and get into a topic that honestly has kind of burdened my heart uh, immensely since Easter, and that's the bombings in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. And I have to be honest with you, that that news hit me kind of hard Sunday morning as I imagined myself and my loved ones all sort of worshiping Jesus on arguably the most powerful holiday of the Christian year, and then all of a sudden being blown apart by terrorists. It's frightening. And to make it worse, the group responsible is claiming that it's a retaliation move for the mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand on March 15th, another gruesome and horrible event. So. What do we do with all this? Well, I would argue caution. All right. And that's what we're going to talk about on this edition of The Wire. Sometimes it's difficult to know what to say when world tragedies occur. I believe that's especially true for Christians. Whether it's because we talk a lot about death and overcoming death, or because we seem to have a knack for sticking our noses into any and every situation, I often find myself in a position where people want to hear the Christian view on one thing or another. And that's especially true this week. Following the bombings in Sri Lanka, you might get asked some questions about your thoughts, and that will be exponentially more likely if your coworkers, friends, or family know that you are a Christian. And maybe you're used to handling questions about tragedies, or maybe not, but I want to offer some advice on how we should address three common questions regarding the Sri Lanka bombings that can really be applied to any major tragic event. So here we go. Question one. What do you think about the bombings in Sri Lanka? Well, this is the most generic of the questions and is typically just a conversation starter about the event. But the purpose of the question is to elicit your reaction to the event, and if not handled well, can divert the conversation away from what matters. My advice? Stay as general as the question requires. Discuss how sad it is, how difficult it must be for the families and the community, or how frightening it is. But don't try to figure out the whys or hows. Just acknowledge the tragedy and speak to sadness over the loss of life. Much else could lead to difficulties in the next two inevitable questions. Question two. Do you think they will retaliate? What do you think will happen now? Here we have to acknowledge that any sort of violent or retaliative response is not the realm of our Christian faith. Christians don't bomb, raid, or send in elite SEAL teams. Governments do. My advice? Again, express how sad and tragic the event is and that we will pray and do whatever we can to help. As for justice, God has governments in place for a reason, and we will allow those governments to do their job. This is of particular importance in this situation because the bombings occurred against Christians. To insinuate in any way that Christians should respond with some sort of violent act could give the appearance that we are waging a conflict over our God. 
holy wars are not a part of the Christian faith, so we must steer clear of any communication that could be perceived by others as a need to retaliate for religious reasons. If pressed for an answer, I would suggest reiterating the purpose of government and simply reply that we don't have all the information, and justice, while necessary, is not the job of the church. Question 3. Why would God let this happen? This is a tricky question because what they really want to know is why didn't God step in and prevent tragedy? In the minds of most people, the role of God is relegated to making life good. Otherwise, what's the point of religion? So in response, we have to be in tune to the questions behind the question and make sure we address the question carefully. My advice? First off, never defend God in situations like this. When we get defensive and try to come up with reasons, we just end up misrepresenting God and the church. So the general rule of thumb is, talk about what you know and don't talk about what you don't know. Sounds simple enough, but is oftentimes trickier than we expect. It is fine to say, well, I don't know why it happened, but I do know that sin is real, death is real, and God has overcome both. When we attempt to get into the mind of God and speak to others about the whys or hows, we typically either turn God into a God who is responsible for evil, which he is not, or the bumbling idiot who doesn't know what's happening, which, again, he is not. These events are difficult, so allow them to be difficult. This may not satisfy the mind of the unbeliever who wants to know, but it will protect the integrity of the church and rightly position God as the God who offers love and grace in the face of tragedy. Overall, focus on what happens now, not what happened. Speak to the response of love from Christians all over the world, the prayers and support that are being offered, and the willingness of many to ask the most crucial question that can be asked after any tragedy. How can I help? That's going to do it for this week's podcast. Thanks again so much for joining me. Make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe to this channel and all our media outlets to get the latest news and information as we release them. Until next time, everyone, have an incredible week. I'm Anthony Creedon, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>